Well, if you brought your Bibles with you this morning or look on your phone or whatever electronic device you read God's Word on, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 and starting in verse 16 today. This is going to be our second message of the new year. And today we're going to be talking about something a little bit different. And the title of today's message is Redeeming Your Time. Has anyone here ever gone to the store and bought something that required a lot of assembly? Anybody? Entertainment centers, furniture, just anything that has to do with a lot of assembly. I remember Tammy and I were newlyweds. We bought an entertainment center at the store and it came in a big heavy box. I had to call a friend to help me carry it into the house, it was that heavy. Get the thing out, sitting down on the living room floor, spending hours. I opened the instructions and the instructions are actually written in Chinese, I think. It was some type of oriental pictorial language, and I couldn't read a thing, but they had great diagrams. Had great diagrams, so I'm like, oh, I can do this. You know, the, the, the typical uh, thing a, a guy is going to say, oh, I'll figure it out. I can do this. I don't need these instructions. So I get the thing, and I'm putting it together, spending hours and figuring out where screw A goes into the slot B and, and all these kind of things, and I'm getting ready to stand the thing up for the first time. And I stand it up, lift it up, and it pops down, and I realize that the center pillar thing in there that holds the whole rest of it together is backwards. The unfinished side is facing out. And I'm like, oh, really? I just wasted all of that time? And I'm looking at it, and there's just no way to just take that one piece out, turn it around, and put it back in. So now I have to take the whole thing apart and just to turn that one thing around so I had it done right. Oh, it was just a huge waste of time. Another thing that can be frustrating, maybe most women don't know about putting stuff together. Maybe I'm being sexist, I don't know. If I am, you can tell, yell at me later. But something that can be frustrating, since I, got, I was picking on um, the guys here, this can be something that can be frustrating for uh, the ladies about guys. Has anyone been on a long road trip and you ended up taking the wrong turn somewhere and you drove the wrong way for a couple hours? Yeah. You ever done that? I've done that. And you finally realize, you know, that, you know, you're heading toward Kansas City and all of a sudden it says, welcome to Detroit. You know, <laughs> you're, you're kind of going, Oh man, now I gotta turn around and I gotta go completely back in the other direction. I just wasted so much of my time. Anybody here hate that? Just wasting time like that? It's just something ingrained in most people that we just absolutely hate it when we waste that kind of time. But I think if many of us were honest with ourselves, if we pulled out our date book, if we pulled out our electronic calendars, and we or we actually recorded everything we did in a day we would say that we probably actually waste a lot of our time. The idea of wasted time is something that God has brought to the forefront of my life very recently. Last December, I turned 49 years old. This is a time that most people in life, where you're starting to be called middle-aged. It's about this time in middle age that usually when most people, especially guys, they have this thing called a midlife crisis because they realize that half of their life, or over half of their life, is over. And I suppose in some ways, I'm experiencing a little bit of a midlife crisis. 
don't worry, I'm not gonna go buy a Corvette. I'm not gonna start wearing a bad toupee or, or get a girlfriend or anything like that. If I'm having any sort of midlife crisis, it's coming down to the realization of how important time is. God has a lot to say about our understanding of the concept of time. Time is one of the most valuable gifts that God has ever given to us. Time is meant to remind us that our life here on earth is limited. If you want to know one of the reasons that God gave all those ceremonies, all of those festivals, everything that had to do with the temple in the Old Testament, that when you're reading Exodus through Deuteronomy and you start going, oh my gosh, you're talking about another one of these ceremonies. This is why he gave all that to us, to remind us that tick-tock, 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 Time keeps on drift, is it drifting into the future, that song from the 70s. It just keeps going and ticking, and sooner or later, we're going to be standing before God to give an account. And I think this really hit, got, hit me last year when I had to go to Pastor Ron's funeral. Many of you know that Pastor Ron was like a father to me, especially a spiritual father, but almost like a natural father to me. For almost 10 years, I served as his associate pastor. And the funeral message that was given was given by one of his uh, best friends, crazy Greek evangelist named Dean Nefaratis. And during the, the message, Dean spoke from Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And I said that our main verse today will be from Ephesians. That is true. I'm going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 12 to kind of set a mood for our main scripture because it really talks about this issue of time. So Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1 says, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after their rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those looking through the windows grow dim when the doors to the street are closed, and the sound of grinding fades when people rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint, when people are afraid of heights and dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire it no longer is stirred. Then the people go to their eternal homes and mourners go out into the streets. Remember him, and the hymn there is God. Remember God before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken. Before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel is broken at the well. And the dust returns to the ground where it came from and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. That, to me, is a very powerful and sobering scripture about the value of time. It's a plea from our wise Father God to consider how we use this gift of time that he has given us. And this morning I want to talk about God's gift of time and how important it is for us to use this gift in such a way that we honor God with it because we will have to give an account of it one day. And this is incredibly important for us because 
once we get a sense that our time here on this earth is finite and will someday run out, I think it's going to help us to order our days. It's going to help us to live our lives in such a way that we honor him in every way. And that will lead us to the principles found in the central verse that I want us to explore today. And that's going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. And I'm going to read it from the New King James. See then that you walk circumspectly. That word circumspectly means carefully. See then that you walk carefully, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And Father God, I just ask, Father, that you just help us to take a moment this morning and quiet our spirits, quiet our hearts, quiet all the noises and, and everything around us. Put down the electronics and listen to what your word says about one of the most important but unthought of things in our life. And that is how we use our time. Because once we get an appreciation that we don't know how much of this gift you've given us, it will help us to order our lives in such a way that in everything we do, we will glorify you. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. As I said in the beginning, the title of today's message is Redeeming Your Time. This morning we're going to look at three different principles about how to use this finite resource that God has given us. And the first principle I want us to start thinking about is probably going to be the most difficult for us to appreciate and the most difficult for us to accept, actually. And that is our mortality. This idea that we only have a limited amount of time is actually a gift from God. So let's talk about the gift of mortality. My grandfather used to tell me that youth is wasted on the young. My grandfather obviously was considerably older than I was. He was in his 60s when I was in my you know, late or early teens. And as I've gotten older, I understand that there is some truth to that because when mo most people are young, they have no concept of the value of time. That's something that, that really comes with age and that wisdom. And I was introduced to this, this idea that our mortality was a gift in middle school, in a public school, actually. We were required to read a series of books by J.R.R. Tolkien called The Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings series is written as an allegory to Christian spirituality. Most people don't realize that. J.R.R. Tolkien was a Christian who was writing a story, really, for his, his grandchildren, to, to read them before they went to bed. J.R.R. Tolkien is the one who got C.S. Lewis to accept Jesus Christ, who is another famous Christian author. So this is a whole Christian allegory and spirituality. And you see the biblical or Christian worldview throughout the books, even if you didn't see it in the Hollywood movies that came out. And one of the topics of this, these books deals with the idea of mortality. And within this fictional world that he creates called Middle-earth, there is something called the gift of the Valar. The Valar were considered to be the Godhead. They were considered to be they were the allegory toward the Trinity. In the Lord of the Rings series, the Valar are, again, that idea of the Trinity or God. And the gift of the Valar to man 
was that they make humanity's lifespan much shorter than the other fantasy races within Middle Earth. And I remember speaking about this, I think I was in eighth grade, and we were saying that's not much of a gift. I mean, when you consider the elves, they live forever. You consider the dwarves, they live for thousands of years. You consider the other races, they live so much longer, and yet men in Middle Earth only live to be one to 200 years old, depending on what family they came from. I said, how is that a gift? That just sounds like that's a slap in the face to me. And now when I became a Christian, and we started reading about the first few chapters of Genesis and how sin resulted in humanity not being able to live forever, I see this also within the Christian worldview. This problem was made even worse after the flood in that now we only live about 80 to 90 years old on average. I was 23 when I accepted Christ, and while I understood that that idea of mortality is part of God's judgment upon sin, I still kind of had this thought in the back of my head that I wouldn't admit to anybody that God was being unfair, that we couldn't live at least as long as Adam to be over 900 years old. I, I used to think that it was kind of unfair. I mean, God, why can't we at least try to live that long? I mean, if, if we live that long, 49, I'm still a kid. I mean, I'm like a toddler, <laughs> if you think about it, right? I'm like, God, what, what, what's up with this, this idea that our mortality is a gift? I'm 49 years old, and if I remain in decent health, drop some weight, barring illness or sudden injury, my family on both sides typically live into their 80s and 90s, so I could have about 30 to 40 years left. And my thinking of mortality has changed in the, a lot in the last 26 years, and particularly in the last year since I was thinking about Pastor Ron dying at 64. And I've come to realize why this is a gift. I'm not as resentful about having a limited lifespan like I was. I've come to appreciate the idea of mortality, and I see it as a gift from a loving God instead of a judgment from an angry God. You see, mortality helps us to want to enjoy every moment he has given us. I mean, if you think about it for a moment, if we got to live to, say, 3,000 years old, it doesn't matter what I do right now. But if I know that I'm going to die in 80, you know, I have about 80 years to live, it's going to help me to want to enjoy, to make the most out of every portion in my life. You know, when Tammy and I talked about me going to nursing school, she's like, you're not even going to graduate until you're 52 years old. She goes, do you, she goes, that's crazy. Nobody goes back to school in their 50s. She goes, are you insane? You know how stressful that's going to be? You know how hard that's going to be? And I said, you know what? I don't want to be one of these guys that just sits in an armchair and waits for death. I want to do more as long as God gives me strength, I want to do more now than I did when I was younger. I don't want to just kind of just be in a wheelchair and be pushed over the finish line. I want to sprint over the finish line as long as God gives me strength. And I want to be able to accomplish just as much now as I did when I was younger. And I think that's why I started to see our mortality as a gift instead of seeing it as a curse, like most people do. Let me show you a biblical example of a man who came to appreciate his mortality when a sudden illness came upon him. 
If you still have your Bibles open and you want to turn and read with me, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 20. We're going to read the account of a king in the nation of Judah named Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the few godly kings that got to rule over Judah, and he ruled the southern kingdom. Hezekiah was suddenly infected with some sort of aggressive skin disease, and we think it's probably some sort of leprosy or some type of flesh-eating bacteria. Whatever it is, it was bad, and it was killing him at an accelerated pace. So let's read the account here in 2 Kings chapter 20. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, Lord, how I've walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the ruler of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says. I have heard your prayer and I've seen your tears. I will heal you. I will add 15 years to your life and I will deliver you and this city from the hands of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Then Isaiah said, prepare a poultice of figs, and they did so, and applied it to the boil, and he recovered. Now a little background as to some of the reasons why Hezekiah may have suddenly become ill. There was an emerging kingdom at that time named Assyria. Assyria had just wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel, had wiped them out, carried away all the people into their nation, and they're now poised on their northern border, getting ready to do the same thing to the southern kingdom of Judah. Up until this point, for the most part, Hezekiah was a decent king. He acknowledged God in his life. He acknowledged God in the way he ruled his kingdom. But we also know, if you really look into his life and the writings of the prophet Isaiah, that he was a very proud king. He was a very arrogant king in some ways. Although his heart was, was for God, he still had that, that fleshly pride that was in him. And this proud king now had an army several times larger than anything Judah could put into the field to face them. His nation was facing imminent destruction, so God needed to use mortality to get Hezekiah's attention quickly and therefore allowed this illness in his life. You see, prior to this illness, this proud king probably would have thrown an army against this, this conquering nation. And they would have been slaughtered on the field of battle, and Assyria would have wiped Judah from the earth. But God used the principle of death and mortality to change the course of Hezekiah's thinking and change the course of his life, and not only his life, but the life of those around him. This is how God uses this idea and this gift of mortality in our lives. It's, it's here to center us. It's here to remind us and make us realize that we only have a certain amount of this commodity given to us. And that is why this principle 
of mortality is a gift to us because it keeps this idea of our limited time on this earth front and center so that we spend the time that God has given us very wisely. Most of us live on a budget of some type. We know how much money is coming in and we know what the bills are going to um, be, have to be paid. We know what the income is, we know what the expense are. Those are generally pretty for sure things. So we know that if our expenses are this and our income is that, that we cannot afford to buy a new Lamborghini. We need to look at time the same way. There is an expense account that we have no idea what it is. We, and we don't know how much income we have either. So we have to use every little bit of this commodity to give it to God for his glory. That doesn't mean you have to work, work, work. Sometimes using it for play, using it for recreation is a way to honor God. But don't waste it. And that leads us to our next point, which is the stewardship of time. Whenever the word stewardship comes up in a church, everybody's mind automatically goes to tithes and finances or money. And that's often the focus in the church because Jesus talks a lot about money. We're not talking about money today, so don't check out. The funny thing is about money is that you can have all the money in the world. You can be Bill Gates or you can be Jeff Bezos, the, the owner of Amazon, richest man in the world right now. Billions of dollars at your disposal. And never really appreciate that with the most money of anyone else in the world, it's nowhere near the most valuable commodity in existence. The most valuable commodity you possess right now is time. You see, you can't get any more of it no matter how much money you spend. No matter how hard you work, how much you try, how much you diet, how much you exercise, you can't get more time. God's word said it is appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. We all have a set date on a calen God's calendar for our death. Life isn't about what you can accumulate. There's a popular saying that you never see a U-Haul following a hearse. Your wealth does not follow you into the grave. Your possessions that, will be give, that you accumulated will be given or sold to other people. Your position or education can't be transferred. It dies with you. The only thing that follows you into eternity is how you use the time that God gave you. All these other things we listen may factor into your reward someday, but ultimately it's going to come down to how you spent your time. And that's why it's so important for us to understand, right, to understand this right away in the new year is that we need to focus on the big stuff first. There's a great illustration I found about this, about a time management expert who was speaking to a group of business students at Harvard. To drive home the point of time management he used an illustration that these students would never forget. Now he's standing in Harvard Business School. This is the best business school in the world, filled with high-powered overachievers. Students that will be hired by the biggest companies in the world make the hugest salaries, make the biggest impact in the business world. And so this guy sits them all down. He says, okay, time for a quick quiz. He pulls out a one-gallon wide-mouth mason jar and set it on the table in front of him. Then he takes out a crate with a dozen fist-sized rocks in it, and he carefully places them within this huge mason jar one at a time. 
When the jar was filled to the top and no more of these big rocks would fit inside, he asked, is this jar full? And his students looked at it and said, well, yeah, yeah, it's full. And then he said, really? He reached down and grabs another bucket, this time of gravel, and he starts carefully shaking it in there. And all this gravel makes its way between the big rocks and goes all the way down and, and it fills all the way to the top. And he asked the group once more, is this jar full? Well, this time the class is on to him. They said, well, probably not. Good, he replied. He reached under the table and he brings out a bucket of sand. And he uses a sand, he shakes the thing, and he uses a sand and he fills it up all the way to the top. He goes, is this jar full? And they said, no. He said, good. Now he takes some water and starts to pour it into the sand, and the sand soaks it up. And he pours just a, almost a whole gallon of water into this thing that the sand sucks up. And he said, what is the point of this illustration? And one eager beaver raises his hand and says, the point is, no matter how full your schedule is, professor, if you try really hard, you can cram more in there. The expert smacked the eager beaver in the head and said, no. He said the point of this story with the rocks and the gravel and the sand and the water is not that you can only, always cram more in. The point is you need to put the big rocks in first. One of the greatest suckers of stewardship and the greatest suckers of our time that, that we waste time on is that we go in reverse and we start with the small stuff and it fills up our schedule instead of focusing on the big stuff. And the big stuff in a Christian's life is our relationship with God. Amen. That has to be the first rock that goes into the jar of your time. Your relationship with God has to be first and primary in all of that. Let me make this very clear. From the Bible's point of view, the big rock in a Christian's life is a relationship with Jesus Christ first. Number two, if you are married, it is your marriage. Those two things come first. Then the rest of your immediate family, including your kids. Marriage comes before kids. When I hear, parent, when I hear co-workers and all that, said, my kids will always come first. I said, well, your marriage is doomed. Your marriage has to come first. Because if your marriage falls apart, what happens to the kids? I don't see too many divorced kids that come out of that totally unscathed. You need to focus on the marriage first. Then can come your church. Then can come your church family. Those are your big rocks that you need to have in your life. Then everything else, and none of these other things are bad. Your career, your job, your hobby, the fun stuff is the gravel. It can be the sand. It can be the water that, that fills up the rest of your jar. But those big rocks have to be in there first. And if we can get this right in our lives, this will cause us to have the largest impact for Jesus Christ in our world. The problem with most Christians today is we're so focused on the, the water, the sand, and the gravel is that we totally miss the big rock. Didn't Jesus say he is our rock? This is why we get so sucked into everything else. And we, our impact for the world is totally stripped away. Let me, show, let me give you some examples. Guess what happens this morning at 6 6.30 in the morning? My pager goes off for a Mabus drill. Osseo Fire Department pulls a Mabus drill at 6.30 in the morning on a Sunday morning. You know when they do most of their fire department trainings around here? Sundays? When is kids soccer? 
Sundays? When are a lot of uh, high school um, um, electives done? Sundays? You think there's a reason for that? It's because the devil wants to remove that big rock out of our life. He wants to fill our jar with the water. He wants the sand. He wants the gravel. He does not want that big rock in there. So he uses all that other stuff to fill our lives. You see, if we can get this right in our lives, this is what's going to help us to live in such a way that we exude Jesus to everybody. It doesn't just help us to impact our world for Jesus Christ, but it's also the way that we can live a fulfilling life in our own spirits, filled with hope and peace and joy, because we'll be living in the middle of God's will for us. And the final point I want to make today is this. Someday, we will give a reckoning of our time. Now, that word reckoning is just an old way of saying that everything will be brought into account when we stand before Jesus Christ. One of my favorite sayings comes from Noah Webster. Noah Webster published the famous Webster's Dictionary. And he said that the most important thought that has ever occupied my mind is that of my individual responsibility to God. It's when I stand before him. What am I going to have? What am I going to say? What have I accomplished for him? Earlier I said that, if you see it in Hebrews 9.27, if you're taking notes, it's appointed for man once to die. And after that, the judgment. Part of that judgment, a large part of that judgment, will be how we spend our life here on earth. You know, we started with Ecclesiastes 12. I'm going to end The last scripture today will be from Ecclesiastes 12, the last couple verses. Verse 13 says, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So I would ask you today, What's in your mason jar? Is it filled with water and sand and gravel? Things that when you stand before God will be like wood, hay, or stubble and flash into non-existence when he applies his holiness to it? Or will it be the rocks that he has given us to anchor our lives to so that we can live a life that is pleasing to him? And I hope that today's message helps us to appreciate the wisdom of God in giving us a time limit in our lives. You see, this time limit is meant to help us to appreciate the value of that time. It will help us to steward that gift appropriately. And when we stand before him to give an account of how we have spent this precious gift he has given us, we will not be ashamed. And lastly, you know, most of the things that that we freak out about in life, most of the things that cause us to be afraid, most of the things that cause us stress and anxiety are (laughs) the water, the sand, and the gravel, is worrying about those things. And understanding that this gift of time comes from God, understanding it and accepting it will help us to learn to live in peace and joy. Because understanding this gift he's given us is one of the most important principles of living a life 
that will echo into eternity. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Father, first for this gift of time. And I thank you, Father, just in, even in just my life, if nobody got anything out of today's message, I did. And I thank you, Father, for showing me how important this idea of the gift of time is in my life. And I ask, Father, that you will just take your word and help it germinate in the people's hearts here to help us to look at a calendar, look at a clock, look at even the second hand a little differently than when we walked in the door.